This is the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Mike Lindefore, chair of the AOS Resident Assembly. Hello, everyone. We are live at the 2024 AOS Annual Meeting with a repeat special guest, Dr. Elizabeth Madskin. She's currently the outgoing chair of the Membership Council of AOS. She's also a board-certified sports medicine fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon. She's currently chair of the Women's Sports Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, also associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School, and fellowship director at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Maskin has an incredible brilliance and stature in the field of sports medicine and orthopedics as a whole, and we are thrilled to have her with us today. Welcome, Dr. Maskin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've had you before on a prior episode. For our listeners, you should go back and check that out if you haven't heard that yet. That's episode 15, Building Skills Through Leadership. But today, I really wanted to dive into a little bit more of the nuances of finding our passion in our individual specialty. When did you know sports medicine was right for you? So I actually went to medical school knowing I wanted to do orthopedic surgery, but it did take me a few years of residency to decide I wanted to do sports medicine. Actually, I was thinking about sports medicine. I remember meeting with my chairman and he asked what specialty I was considering. And I paused to think about it. And while I was pausing to think about it, he said, you know, Liz, I believe you'll be doing sports medicine. And that basically solidified it for me right then and there. I loved the patient population and I really loved doing arthroscopy. I think it's also a really unique experience for a lot of us played sports or had some sort of sports training in our background. I'm interviewing right now for a fellowship and I feel myself given that same cliche story of I was an athlete, I was injured, that's why I love sports. But there really is something to be said about having that understanding and experience that your patient may be having that is really hard unless you've gone through that yourself. You've also found a very unique niche specifically for women's sports medicine health. Can you tell us a little bit more about just what that means and how you got into that role? Absolutely. So I think it's really been a collaboration of many of my passions. And as you just mentioned, I was an athlete and I like to believe that I'm still an athlete, just at a different level. I've always been interested in the nuances of the female athlete. I also have three daughters who are athletes. And so some of my passion certainly stems from that. My research has really focused on sex differences in sports medicine and understanding those differences, how to prevent them, how to manage them and treat them better is really where this niche developed. And some of these differences in understanding and being able to treat these female athletes requires collaborating with other specialties to provide comprehensive care to the female athlete, such as physical therapy, endocrine, sports psychology, nutrition. And once you start doing that, that's basically the foundation of a women's sports medicine program. I agree. And I like the sentiment of athletes of all ages. I think that's what's special about sports. Again, us all being past athletes, we still think we are. We still want to be in the game. So I get that patient at every level that wants to get back to whatever level of activity they were at. I also think what's really intriguing about sports medicine is everything you can get involved in outside of the OR, just like you're mentioning. Are there any certain projects or initiatives that you're working on right now that you're most proud of? Right now, we actually have a prospective randomized study going on 
where all of my ACL surgery patients are being prospectively randomized to either my regular post-operative management or regular post-operative management with some Zoom sessions with our sports psychologists, really working on mindfulness and self-compassion and just trying to see if we can understand a little bit more of that psychological aspect of treating our patients. They all identify as athletes. We're taking them out of their game for eight plus months with ACL surgery and how we can potentially give them more confidence and how that affects their pain and initial rehab and then how it affects them getting back to sports at the same level. So I'm excited to see how that's going to pan out. That's incredible. That really takes it to the next level, not just rehabbing from a physical standpoint, but how do we get our athletes mentally back to the level they were at and continue? Is there anything in particular that you've learned this far in your career that has helped you get into these niche roles of the women's sports medicine, the sports psychology? How do we learn and develop early on what's going to be our passion or our niche and our specialty? So I think finding what really sparks your passion and interest is paramount to being successful at whatever you decide to do. Because if you don't love what you're doing, it's just not going to be as fun. I show up to to work every day and I have fun. And I have the honor to work with students and residents and fellows. And when they want to get engaged in something, I want them to be engaged in something that they truly enjoy. So if it's a research project and like it doesn't really excite them, then I'm like, all right, let's find another topic or a different project. Because if it's not exciting for whoever I'm working with, it takes the fun out of it for me. So whether it's perfecting a surgical technique or delving into a research topic, make sure it really interests you. Use your mentors and your colleagues to help you. Maybe it's something outside of clinical practice. It could be an education. It could be pathways in the community. It could be with health equity. It could be with sustainability nowadays. There are many things that you can do that can, in your specialty, that can still incorporate whatever passions you may have. I know you've talked about that a little bit on the last episode as well, is just knowing what excites you. In keeping that in mind, what advice would you give to early career surgeons, fellows, chief residents on developing your two, five, your 10-year career goals and any specific factors looking back that you think are most important to consider? First and foremost, I would say to everyone who's finishing residency and fellowship, Spend your time and energy on being an amazing surgeon. Hone your surgical skills, take really good care of your patients, and just remember that we are doctors or surgeons first. And then once you've established yourself as an excellent surgeon, then you can start thinking about the other stuff. Leadership is always going to be there. Leadership positions are always going to be there. And then once you've established yourself, then you can decide if you want to start with leadership positions in your hospital, in your state, in your specialty, or in the AOS. I think it's really important to ask yourself every year or every two years, what are your goals? What are your work goals? What are your family goals? What are your hobbies? What do you want to accomplish? And it's okay to change. I always say have guidelines, but not a rigid pathway. I think things will change as you figure out where your niche is, where your passion is, or where there's a hole in something that needs someone to champion. So I would be open. I would think about your guidelines every few years, your goals, where you want to go. But first and foremost, establish yourself as an excellent surgeon. 
I think that's great advice. It's often easy to get overwhelmed with just staying relevant, wanting to be involved, trying to tackle everything. But I think you're right. And the further we get along in training, the more we realize the importance it is to have something to stand on. Your research, your leadership, everything else you're involved in is only as good as folks respect your clinical skills and as a surgeon. In your last episode, we talked a little bit about the importance of knowing what volunteer opportunities are right for you and where you can dedicate your time. Doing that throughout the week at the annual meeting can be a little bit difficult. It can seem a little overwhelming. What advice would you give early career surgeons about prioritizing our time at the annual meeting? So the annual meeting has so much going on. And I think when I look back to my first annual meeting, it was all about education. You're a sponge. You just want to learn as much as you can. You want to look at the posters. You want to go look at the videos. You want to hear the paper presentations, go to the ICLs, go to the symposiums. And then as you move through your career and you start to get involved in the AAOS in different ways, the meeting will kind of evolve. As you know, you have been to the resident assembly meetings and you have multiple different meetings that pertain to that. So I think the annual meeting provides education. It allows us to do our committee work. It allows us to network. I think especially for our early career members going to the career center, there's so many things that they offer with regards to whether it's interviewing, looking for a job, helping you with your CV, getting a headshot. Some of the things that we don't always think about, you can tackle all of that here at the annual meeting. The Career Ex Center has been particularly exceptional, I think, at this meeting. The opportunity to, like you mentioned, get your headshot, talk to someone in person about my CV and review nuances to make it even more polished. There is some really incredible resources there. Now, you're also outgoing chair of the Membership Council of the AOS, which is a council that you helped develop. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and give us a little insider view of what it was like just to start your own council and how that experience has gone? I look at it as a privilege and it was a great opportunity to help restructure the AOS and the Membership Council oversees membership, the International Committee, the Diversity Advisory Board, Communications Committee, and the Resident Assembly. And from all that, we really talk a lot about at a higher level how we can improve and personalize AOS membership for everyone. And certainly the Resident Assembly is an amazing introduction into the structure and governance of the AOS and its organization, and it's a surefire way to try and get involved. And working with each group and then bringing the ideas up to the board level and trying to advocate for the things that are going to be best for our members has been something that I will always feel honored to have done. I'm looking forward to passing on the reins to Dr. Lewis, who's going to take over the membership council. And I would say, though, that the Resident Assembly has always been a very important voice even though your voice isn't actually in the boardroom, it is represented and our younger members are incredibly important to the organization. I think early on too, for members transitioning from the trainee role in the academy, a resident fellow, and then transitioning to the candidate role, do you have any thoughts or advice for those folks on best ways to get involved or to just get the most out of their membership as we're transitioning that role? Yeah, this is a great question. I think 
we reorganize membership categories and now we even have a medical student membership category so we can engage medical students who are considering orthopedic surgery. Certainly, as I just mentioned, the resident assembly is an amazing introduction into the structure and governance of the organization. We also have the AOS Leadership Institute. We call it the Ally Program and there are multiple levels. And this really can teach you a lot about the governance and structure and the councils and the committees. And you can start to think about what pathway interests you the most. There's kind of like the education pathway, there's the research and quality pathway, there's advocacy. I would also say there's ways to get involved in the AAOS through your state societies. And that's an excellent way, especially for our early members who are just starting out in their career. There's so many ways to get involved. I think coming to these meetings, you get to network, use your mentors, use your colleagues, use your friends. That's a really good way to start getting an introduction into the areas that are going to pique your interest most. You mentioned all these different areas such as education, advocacy, membership, communication. There's so many different avenues, as you mentioned, to get involved with the academy and even your subspecialty societies. Do you feel like your involvement with AOS has helped shape the vision you see for your career and the direction you want that to go or vice versa? Do you feel like you had certain career goals in mind and that kind of developed your interest specifically in the AAOS leadership structure? I think it's a little bit of both. I started out on different committees through the AAOS and went through some leadership committees and went through some communications committees and some education committees. And so I think I somewhere found myself growing up towards the membership council, but I've been lucky to have gone to the NOLC and learn about advocacy when I was early in my career. Just as I mentioned, I think figuring out which pathway, because you can't really be involved in all of them, or at least not at the same time, interests you the most and going down that road from an educational standpoint, we've really worked on making sure we have excellent education for our residents with the rock and res study and then specialty topics as well as practice management. And then through membership, we've tried to make sure that we have what our early career members need with the JOS collection, OVT, the career center has a whole new program to help with job search I mentioned the Leadership Institute. So I think, and then advocacy is something that is a real big one, but it's hard to understand how important advocacy is, especially as a resident. But once you start in your career, this becomes more and more important. And it's something that the AOS offers. It's very hard for the subspecialty societies to do because we need to advocate in large numbers. And it doesn't really matter what you go into, whether it's academics or a large group or a hospital-based or private practice, advocacy is going to be really important down the road. You've been involved with lots of different leadership opportunities. Obviously, you have a very busy clinical practice as I was reading about you and just making sure I knew as much as I could, I continued to unturn things I wasn't sure about or didn't know about. Looking back, is there any advice you would give to your early career self on what you really think has helped you the most or maybe you didn't know on how to be involved in so much and do everything as well as you have? So I would be thoughtful about not spreading yourself too thin and understanding really where you want to spend your time and energy. Because if you join a committee and you do a poor job, 
or don't have the commitment or the time for it, that's going to stick with you. So if you do join something, I think one, as we've mentioned, make sure it's something that you're going to be happy doing. And two, do a really good job. If you do a really good job, it's going to open up the next door at the next level and so on and so forth. There's so many opportunities in orthopedics. And if you go down one road and you're not loving it, you can go down another road, but don't go down five roads at the same time because you want to do a good job at whatever it is, especially when you're starting out, because it's just going to open up more opportunities for you. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. Doing things well from the beginning is what gives you more opportunity. But at the same time, if you don't make the most of that, then folks aren't going to continue to come back to you for more. One of the things I didn't know about you that I read was you were named as the first female associate editor of Arthroscopy Journal in 2020. What do you think our unique voice and stance is as female orthopedic surgeons as a whole? One of my goals has always been to try and help increase the number of women in orthopedics and certainly in sports medicine. I've been the first female in several different situations and I don't want anyone else to have to be the first female in anything. So we need a voice and a presence, but we can't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk and find a seat at the table If you're not at the table, you're on the menu, but if they don't give you a seat, then bring a folding chair. So I think we have to be there and be present. That being said, I also would make a plug to say that as we get a seat at the table, whether it's on a panel or giving a talk, it's so important that we can be the voice of diversity and the voice talking about sex differences and other things. But we also need to be the voice on just being an excellent surgeon and being able to present on surgical technique and how to take care of our patients and not just being the token diversity voice. So really seeing females on the podium or at the table as representatives of our orthopedic surgery and our specialties, I think is the next goal I would like to see. I think that's huge. I've always had that thought and try to differentiate between the two in the back of my head, but I've never been able to put that into words like that. Whether, you know, I'm looking for mentors or in all of folks on the podium, I couldn't agree with you more that trying to balance the we're respected and at the table, not because we bring diversity to representation, but because the entire audience respects you for your career and what we all came here to do. On that note, I get tired of the stereotypical, how do you balance your family and your work as a female orthopedic surgeon? But as a single resident of that, in my early 30s, I barely remember to eat breakfast every morning, maybe wash clothes once every six weeks or so. How have you learned to be so active in your administrative duties, your committees, and clinically busy, but also have a thriving family at home? I always say it's never a balance. It's always a juggling act and learning to prioritize each day and each week, but usually it's day by day for me, is super important. Communicating with my family and being upfront with them. So my husband's also an orthopedic surgeon. So we're always trying to take turns really like who's got a meeting tonight and who's home with the kids or who needs to travel or who's going to be operating late. And so I think it's constant communication, but also the kids at a very young age, like I mentioned, I have three daughters, knew that if something was really important to them, they would let me know and I would be there. 
And so if they had a presentation or something that was important at school and I needed to block my schedule or my husband needed to block his schedule, we would do that. But if it was the Halloween party or the Valentine's party, like we often weren't there. And it was understood very early on in life that when it was important, let us know and we will be there. And so I think that communication was key. I think the other key is surrounding yourself with the right team. And that's both at work and at home. And if you have an amazing team, then you can delegate and share and trust that things will be done. Maybe not perfectly, but that's okay. When my husband was in charge of the kids and their ponytails were a little lopsided, I just had to roll with it when I find, would get home from work and think, huh, they went out all day like that. But it's okay. And life goes on. So I think you have to prioritize, know your values, surround yourself with an amazing team, both at work and at home, be flexible. And then I think we're always talking about making sure you take breaks or find your hobbies, make sure you're working out and you're sleeping and you have good nutrition, all those things that are going to make you better all around. But it's never a balance. It's always a juggling act, at least in my house. Absolutely. I love what you said too about setting those standards and boundaries from early on, like your kids knowing, hey, communication is important, not just among you and your husband, but your kids too. Let us know what's important to you and we'll make that a priority. When I was in medical school, one of the general surgeons that I worked with, she mentioned, my kids will grow up and know I won't be at everything, but they know that when mom's not there, mom's taking care of other people and mom is impacting other people's lives. And it's not like, you're not there because you don't want to be, but you have a duty and responsibility that you take in really high regard to take care of other people. And that's something that's just always stuck with me because when your kids grow up, that's what they're going to know. That's what they're going to remember, not the time you weren't at the Valentine's Day party. I hope so. And I think they do. As they got older, I think they very much respect everything we do. And it's been a joy having kids and moving through all those different phases with them. Not always easy, but it is worth it. Absolutely. I'd like to wrap up every session with a quick rapid fire to help our listeners just to get to know you on a little more personal level. What are your favorite go-to OR shoes? Running sneakers. Any particular brand? Yep. Usually it's the sneak running shoes that I have finished training in and I like to train in Sauconies. But I jump around. I have some Nikes and some Hokas in there in the mix. That's great. So you get them broken in before you take them to the OR. What is your go-to playlist in the OR? Country music, for sure. Favorite artist by chance? Oh, that's hard. If I had to pick a favorite, I have been a longtime country music fan. So sometimes we're in the classics and sometimes it's the hot new country. But I love Zach Brown Band. That's a good one. What is your favorite surgery? ACL reconstruction in a female athlete. That's great. Doesn't get better than that, does it? Did you watch the Super Bowl this year for the football, the halftime show, or sightings of T-Swift? My home team was not in the game, but it was a great game, and I had so much respect for Mahomes at the end, especially as a surgeon. He was so cool with 10 seconds left, and I loved seeing that aspect of the game. I love the halftime show. And as I mentioned, I have three daughters, so I'm by default a Swifty. So I loved all of it. <laughs> all of the above. I love that. Dr. Maskin, thank you for being here with us today and just sharing some of your experience on the AOS Membership Council 
as well as just some of your career and life experience. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you again. Thank you for having me and thank you for all you and your resident assembly does for the AOS. It's super important to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Base Media. For more information on this topic and to hear other conversations on professional development, please visit aaos.org forward slash the bone beat. <laughs>